and welcome to Renewing Your Mind, a web-based ministry of South Bay Community Church located in Fremont, California. It is our prayer that today's broadcast will be a blessing to you. Let us prepare our hearts to hear the word of the Lord. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I want to spend some time this morning talking about greatness. It's an interesting story that we have unfolding in Matthew chapter 20 that two of the apostles and a mama (laughs) wanted to talk to Jesus about being first, being great, having places of exaltation, having recognition for being prominent and significant and meaningful. And we often think that those things sound unholy. But I want us to understand greatness the way that God has laid it out, really all throughout Scripture, but particularly clearly in this portion of Scripture that we have in Matthew and another portion of Scripture that we're going to look at in just a moment in Luke. I want us to get a grasp on this concept of greatness. Now, we've been talking about this definition of be, which means that we're talking about an identity, the quality, or the condition of our lives, ourselves, our hearts, our spirits, and that if we can live this out in our context where we live and breathe and just go about our day-to-day lives, then we can be more like Christ and allow him to live more fully in us. And so it seems a little strange sounding, and maybe we would have read it just like the other 10 apostles did. How dare you and your mama (laughs) go up and ask to be first in the kingdom? But it's interesting if you look at the text, how Jesus responds and what he seems to be implying about greatness. I want to give you three things that I hope we can grasp as the foundation for our time together. The first thing is, while we see in verse 24 that the other 10 apostles were indignant, we don't get any indication that Jesus was indignant. He didn't seem to be upset about it at all. Why is that? I believe it's because Jesus desires greatness for you. He wants you to be great. He, he wants you to desire greatness. I don't think God is at all satisfied when we are satisfied being less than the fullness that he created us to be. I think he wants us to maximize our giftedness, to maximize our abilities, to be good stewards of all that he puts in our hands and have lives that are nothing short of great. He affirms this. In no way does he say, no, you guys shouldn't be wanting greatness. I think he affirms it and says, not only do I approve of that, let me show you how to be great in your life. 
So what Jesus does is he not only affirms a desire, but he's trying to say, let me flip upside down the process and the definition of greatness so you can be great the way I've designed you to be. The problem is not that we shouldn't be great. The problem is that we have a worldly concept of greatness. The problem is that we see how the world defines greatness and we think that's what God has called us to be. But he says, no, let me give you a better godly kingdom-minded definition of greatness that you may live fully into it. What does he say? The first thing is that he says, you know that the Gentile, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. By the world standards, power and domination and control and manipulation means that you are great. You have power over somebody. You can control them. You can tell them what to do. You can dominate them. Maybe it's physically. Maybe you can be overpowering and intimidating. It's, it's actually interesting. We've talked about it before that just even in companies and business, CEOs tend to be tall. Because people think if you're tall, you must be smart or important or something. We just like big overpowering and we assume that there's something powerful in it. But Jesus says, don't do it like the Gentiles do. Your greatness is not uh, found in your ability to dominate or oppress or manipulate somebody else. And in our time, just as in their time, it had to be shocking to say, if you want to be great, be a slave. That doesn't even sound right. Even It just seems weird, doesn't it? If I'm a slave, that means I'm, I'm, I'm being controlled by somebody. That means I'm, I'm serving somebody else and maybe I don't want to. That means that I'm, I'm at somebody else's beck and call. That means maybe I'm, I'm weak or inferior. And he says, that's exactly where greatness is found. In your willingness and your desire to serve. And if you want to be great, do exactly what I did. I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life for somebody else, namely you and me and you and us. He said, this is what greatness looks like. We say God is great. God is powerful. God is omnipotent. God is all these wonderful things. He said, well, then get a picture of greatness from how I lived my life and died for you. And that's how we can get a hold of greatness. But we got to flip the world's view of it. And then not only did he kind of, did he affirm the desire, not only did he kind of give us an upside down view of it, but then he goes forth and says, and I want you to live this out. And a matter of fact, if you're my children and I've called you into my kingdom plan, I am going to pour my greatness into you. See, identity can multiply itself without diminishing. So if God is great, I want to submit that what he wants to do is have his greatness manifested in us so that it can be multiplied in this broken and hurting world, ultimately pointing praise and honor back to him. He wants you to be great so that people can see him in your greatness. Let me, let me give you an example of this. What I'm saying is that, that, that identity is, is multiplicative. If it's truly my character, I can give it away to somebody else and they can take it on and represent the same thing and it just grows. So let me give you an example. It's, it's raining outside. So suppose you got a dog 
and you want your dog to get some exercise. So you're letting your dog go out, and your dog is running around having a great time getting some exercise. But it's raining, so the dog gets muddy. And the dog comes back to the house, and the paws are covered with mud, the face is all muddy, fur's all matted and muddy, and so the dog is scratching the door. You open the door. Before you can stop the dog, the dog runs across your white carpet and jumps up on your white couch. Two things are going to happen. One, you're probably going to put an ad in Craigslist that there's a dog for sale. But the other thing that you're going to happen is you're going to notice that muddiness just multiplied. The dog was muddy and he came into contact with the carpet and the couch and now the couch have become what the dog was. It's multiplicative. I made that word up. Yes, I did. I can make a word up every now and then. But my point is, if God is great, and we are children of God, don't you see how he desires for his greatness to be multiplied in his children? And it won't diminish him one bit. As a matter of fact, it magnifies the name of Jesus. So I want to talk about us becoming great. I want to talk about us having greatness imbued into us. And I want to talk about how God has prepared us to be great before we even knew we were on his radar. I want to go to a different scripture. And it's one that you have probably heard before, but probably never associated with greatness. But to me, it's a blueprint. It's a roadmap for how God wants us to be part of his multiplication of his greatness through us. Turn to Luke chapter 9, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, to the story about Jesus miraculously feeding thousands of people. Now, a little context for this story. Jesus has just finished sending out the 12 apostles. He's already showed his ability to put his spirit and his power into his children. And he he sent them out and he said, I'm going to give you power to have authority over the enemy. You're going to be able to cast out demons. You're going to be able to heal. You're going to be able to speak power and truth to break down strongholds. I'm giving you my power that you may go out and multiply my grace and my mercy. So they just got back from their first holy road trip. Verse number 10 in Luke chapter 9. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Verse 12, late in the afternoon, the 12 came to him and said, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are here in a remote place. He replied, you give them something to eat. They answered, we only have five loaves of bread and two fish. Unless we go and buy food for all this crowd, about 5,000 men were there, not counting the women and children. But he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so and everybody sat down, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke them. 
He gave them to the disciples to set before the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Amazing. Miraculous. But there's more going on here than God just doing another miracle to feed people. He's showing us how to be first, how to be great. What's he doing? Well, first of all, I think Jesus set up the whole thing. He'd been preaching and teaching. He had crowds. He knew people were in need and, and, and wanted healing and, and trying to hear about the kingdom. And so he didn't go to the downtown square. He decided to go out to a remote place with his, with his followers. He was setting up the place for greatness to happen. He set the stage for it by taking them in a place that would ultimately prove to be something challenging. I want to give us a definition of greatness. I want to go to the dictionary. Taylor, if we can go back to that slide, thank you. Here's what Webster says that greatness is. Greatness is, uh, first, it means something big, something huge. The second definition is it's a characteristic of like an animal. So if you got like a Dane and then you got a Great Dane. So it's, it's a description of something relatively bigger. But here's the parts I want us to see. It also said that great means elaborate. And elaborate is talking about a planned, something that's planned out with great care or something that is marked by its complexity. Something is great because it's, it's complex, it's overwhelming, it's, it's got a lot of moving parts, it's got a very complicated thing. Or the second part I want us to see is that greatness also talks about being ample. What does it say? Generous or more than adequate capacity. Generously sufficient to a need. Here's the point. We want to be great, but we don't want any problems. <laughs> See, adversity and complexity and problems are an incubator for greatness. If you don't have any situations that are challenging or complex or beyond your ability, then there's no need for any greatness. But if you have something that's overwhelming, something that's stressful, something that's too heavy for you to carry, something that's beyond your own capacity to handle it, then there's some room for some greatness in you to show up. And what God does, his vehicle of, of making us great is to take our capacity and expanding it and filling it with his capacity. And then we have room for his greatness to enter into our situations. Think about that. You can't be great if you can handle it by yourself. If it's all in your abilities and all in your skills and all in your knowledge, then it was just run of the mill. The amazing happens when there are circumstances that we can't possibly see how it could work out. Can't possibly see how we're going to make it through. Can't possibly see how, how our resources are enough to provide. And into this situation, he's setting up a microscope, a laboratory experiment, trying to show his apostles how to be great. So what does he do? Look at, what, look, look at how he sets this up. He takes his people out to the desert, and then um, just his group, and then the other people see that, that he's out there, and thousands of people follow him out to a remote place. And what does it say he does? He welcomes them. He teaches them and he heals them. He has no problem with 5,000 people coming out to a remote place. He's perfectly comfortable with it. 
What do the disciples say? The apostles, the holy rollers. Lord, send those people away. It's getting dark. It's getting late. I'm getting hungry. They about to take all my food. They're going to want all of our stuff. Lord, send those people away. And how often does God's church do the same thing? When he's trying to bring the broken and the hurting and the needy, when he's trying to call them to himself and God's people say, hey, hey, hold on, hold on. We got a good church thing going over here. You're going to mess it all up with your needy self. And we stand in the middle blocking the movement of people to God. But he knew what was going on. He set it up. He says, no, I'm not going to send them away. As a matter of fact, you feed them. What's he saying? You be great in this situation. Wow. Wow. See, do, do you realize Jesus could have just, you know, snapped his fingers and some manna or some bread? Or he could have just took care of it, right? He didn't need to include his apostles in this situation. But what he's doing is he's trying to imbue his greatness into them so that they can be part of it, so that they can understand that not only am I great, but because you are connected to me, people will see the greatness in you that comes from me. He's trying to include them in the process. And so look what Jesus does. After he set this situation up and the apostles realize we're stuck, we're maxed out. He told us to fix the problem. What do we got? What do we got? We got five pieces of bread and two fish. And they're evaluating the capacity that they have to solve a problem that is beyond their power. And don't we do the same thing? Don't we evaluate the possibilities by what we're bringing to the table, by what giftedness, by what power, by what capacity we have? That's all the limitation. We're blocked by our limitations. We're not allowing for God to come in and do something miraculous. So here's what God does. He, he comes up with a plan. He comes up with a solution. What does it say he does? He first gets on the scene, thousands of people, men, women, and children, 5,000 plus. And the first thing he does is he gets his hands around the situation. Now, if I start bringing some food, it's going to be a stampede. And so he takes a moment to manage the situation. And he says, before we go too crazy jumping into solution mode, let me break this problem down into manageable pieces so that we can have some order as I work. And he takes 5,000 people and puts them into, is that 100 groups of 50? Before he starts doing anything miraculous, he, t- he says, pause and get your head around the situation. I think that's a word for us, by the way. Because we go jumping right in and just frantic. We're trying to fix stuff and do stuff and try stuff and pray something works. But we haven't taken a moment to stop and say, God, this is too big for me all is one thing. Let me break it down into pieces that I can then see you move and I can work through this in some kind of orderly manner. So he gives us that model to first take the problem and break it into pieces. Taylor, I need my slides. Please. Thank you. Next, back one. So I want you to see this. He first broke them into units. The second thing he did is he took what they had and he multiplied it. What did he do? Give me your little rinky-dink capacity that you can't figure out what to do with. Put it in my hands. 
and stand back and watch me work. See, at that point, they did all the preparation and he told them to go take this problem and you break it up. The disciples put them in groups of 50 and then they went back to Jesus and said, we did step one. He said, great, give me your capacity and I'm gonna take your little capacity and I'm gonna turn it into my great capacity. And then he multiplied all of the fish and all of the loaves and then he gave it back to the apostles so that they could go distribute it to the hungry people. So do you see what happened? They not only left there saying, man, Jesus is great. They said, man, that Matthew is awesome. Man, that John is a lifesaver. John gave me what I needed. Man, that Nathaniel, the, the apostles became the face of provision. They became the face of grace. They became the face of God's mercy. And he's trying to do that in each of our lives. He doesn't want us to sit on the sideline and watch him work. He wants us to be the hands and feet of his mercy going out to his people. He's trying to imbue his greatness inside of us, that we can be part of the process, that we can be part of his work, and people will see his greatness in us, and we can then give him the glory. He's trying to train us. On the process, do you notice in this thing, there's no authority, there's no yelling, there's no power, there's no control. They became great. In the, don't you think those 5,000 people knew exactly who those apostles were for the rest of their lives? They went around telling their grandkids about John, man, John can hand out some bread, boy, I'm going to tell you that right now. He can give you some fish when you need it. I mean, they became vessels of greatness to all the people whose lives they touched. And God was saying, that's exactly what I designed you for. So when you find yourself in your remote wilderness, and when you find that your capacity has run out, perhaps God has you right in the spot he wants you to imbue you with his greatness. Amen? Now, that's, that's the first part of this. That's the, that's the receiving the grace. That's becoming instruments of grace. But I was thinking about it, and I think there's a whole other way to look at this. Anytime you see a story in the Bible, one of the cool things that there is to do as we're trying to understand it is look at it from different perspectives. So as you hear the story, who are you in the story? You know, sometimes we'll read the story and we'll think, okay, I, I, I'm, I'm like Jesus. I'm the one who's doing this. Or we'll say, you know what, I'm like the apostles. I, I see how he could use me and I could be part of his distribution. Or, or maybe we see ourselves as the ones that are receiving this grace. Who are you in the story? Well, I had an idea. I, I want to give you a thought to be in the story from a perspective that you probably never thought about before. Imagine yourself in that remote place with thousands of hungry people around, thousands of needs, thousands of issues, and here you are as the loaf of bread. What's the loaf of bread's perspective on this situation? First of all, it's not looking good for the bread. Let's talk about that. But what we need to understand is that God had set this whole thing up from the beginning, right? Even the loaf of bread he had prepared for such a time as this. I started thinking about that. So that's, that's my little 
experiment here is I, I started thinking about the power of, of God preparing this loaf of bread when it was just sitting in somebody's house a long time ago. What's it take to make bread? Yeah, it's not very complicated. We're going to do a little experiment here. I can cook. Don't be talking about me like that. (laughs) Bread is a very simple thing, right? It has very few ingredients. You got some water. You got some flour. You know, it was interesting about flour. When I was starting to do this, I started looking up flour, right? And you got bread flour. You got fast rising flour. You got all kind of flour. This little boy that brought these things, I'm sure he just had some regular old flour, nothing special. But as I was thinking about it, you know what I found out? Even regular flour has a purpose. All purpose. You'll get that later. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. (laughs) Then it's got a little sugar to be sweet. And it's got a little salt. And then you add, of course, the yeast, right? Now, some of us are fancy bread. So we got like, you know, pumpernickel and other stuff in there. But this is just regular old bread. And to make the bread, what do you do? You start beating it up. You start kneading it, right? So you take these raw materials, you take these ingredients, and and you start just kind of mashing them around. And you know what I realized is that you don't have to have a lot of technique to do this. Kids can make dough. You can kind of just not do it right. You don't have to have a, a certain form. You just keep smashing on it, and all of a sudden, it starts taking multiple ingredients, and it becomes something that will eventually turn into a useful loaf of bread, Right? And, and, and so you get in here, and it can be a little, it can be a little uh, you know, a little imperfect, and you can add some more ingredients, but you just keep working it, and pretty soon it starts to turn from multiple ingredients into something that looks like it's going to shape into something. And you know what? I've even dropped dough on the ground before and picked it back up and rinsed it off and put it back in there, and it was fine. The bread came out perfectly fine. You don't have to be a, a, a perfect person to be needing some dough. And you know what I realized? As I was kneading the dough, I realized, you know what? If I was this piece of dough, this probably hurts. I mean, you can push on it, you can smash it, you can poke it, you can mess around with it, you can throw it down and pick it back up, you can treat it real bad. But it doesn't hurt the dough. And it, matter of fact, it's actually good for it. And I was thinking about that. I said, you know what some of our problem is? We don't realize that we need to be needed. See, I, I can't turn into bread until I get needed. So when life has come and it's poked me and pushed me and slammed me down and torn me up and, and ripped me apart and stuck me back together, what I need to realize is that God was in the middle of this needing and he's trying to get me to be a productive loaf of bread. But if I'm so afraid of the needing process, I'll never get to the great purpose that he has for me at the end. So we need the dough. Get it all ready. That looks pretty good. Then you cover it up. 
And what happens? It rises. Bam. <laughs> Poof. And you see, it begins to expand, right? Its, its borders have increased. It's become bigger than it was before. Because we took some yeast that was active with the raw material that was inside of me, and I can take my yeast and I can get puffed up bigger than I was before. Now, now there's a point that I want to make, particularly for my young people here. I, I, I want to I I make a point for all of us. But for my young people, for my young adults, for my 20s and 30s, I, I want you to understand something. That the bread might not be aware of where it is in the process. And sometimes I can have some good raw materials and somebody can have put some yeast in me. I can have the yeast of education. I can have the yeast of giftedness. I can have the yeast of, of, of abilities and recognition. And all of a sudden I get puffed up and I think I'm done. But what I realize or need to realize is that I haven't been in the oven yet. <laughs> so I, I can't get too caught up in my puff uffedness. I'm making up two words, my puff uppedness. Because I'm gifted and my borders have been expanded. And so I think I'm already, but I'm just raw dough right now. I've got potential. I, I, I've got my borders expanding. I'm useful. There's, there's something that's forming in me, but I'm not done yet. And so I may need to listen to some people who have been a little further down the road, who've been in the oven, who can give me some wisdom about what's coming my way and let me know that you are on the way, but you're not quite done yet. And that you got to go in the oven. Matter of fact, you can't become what you're supposed to be until you spend some time in the heat. And the heat looks scary. And the heat looks frightening. But the reality is until you get in there and spend some quality time in the hot box, you cannot get to the purpose that God has for you. So we get cooked up, we apply the heat, it does its thing, and eventually we come out with some fully developed loaves of bread. Amen. Bread came out, it's beautiful, looks nice, delicious. That's not the end of the story yet. Here you are in the midst of 5,000 people. And these little loaves of bread aren't enough. And maybe you thought, I've been through the process. I've got my yeast. I've got my degree and my pedigree. I've been through the oven, and I'm big enough to take care of feeding myself. I've got enough capacity to take care of my children or my loved ones. I've been formed. I've been through the test, and I I made it through. I persevered. My giftedness was was manifested into something else, and, and I've got enough to take care of me and mine. And that's fine, but that's not great. It's not great yet, and God designed you for something bigger than that. He designed you for something awesome, mind-blowing, something that will affect generations of people. But how do we get there? This is going to be something that is so simple 
but so powerful. You can't live beyond your own capacity until you put yourself in the hands of Jesus and let him break you. See, that's when the bread got to be great. Not because it was cooked, but because Jesus put it in his hands and he began to break it. And he broke it over and over and over again. And as he broke it, it became to be a huge capacity that could affect many more people than one little loaf of bread could have ever done. Do you see what I'm saying? We got to be broken by Jesus. We got to allow him to do some, some things in our life. And it might hurt a little bit. Breaking doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel like what we would have signed up for, but as he breaks us, we find our capacity exponentially grown, and we have a capacity to serve way more people than we ever thought we could. That's the decision to decide after I've been needed and beat up by this world, after I've been through the heat of the oven, the heat of unfair treatment, the heat of of all kinds of abuse and all kinds of hard situations, and I feel like I finally have something that is worthy, will I allow Jesus to break me and do something I never saw coming? And that's where greatness lives. When our capacity goes beyond just our own loaf and the master baker turns it into something much bigger than just our lives. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Not so with you. You want to be first? You want to be great? You want your life to be significant? You want to be useful in the master's hands? Got to be a servant. You got to be broken. You got to be available. And then he'll do something awesome with your life. And by the way, some of us got a bread factory going, right? We get one loaf through and he starts making another loaf in our life. It comes in waves and chapters and we have to continue to allow ourselves, God, in all areas of my life, God, in all areas of my giftedness, I will allow myself to be broken that you may fill me and use me as you see fit. You were prepared for greatness long before you ever started breathing. When you were flour and sugar, when you were raw materials, God saw a way that he could pour his divine yeast into your life, carry you through the kneading process, help you get through that oven, and put you in a place where you would surrender your life and he would multiply it so that thousands, generations would be blessed by your sacrifice. I realized how connected these things are as I strive to be an imitator of God. 
He calls me to be merciful. He calls me to be still. He calls me to be generous. He calls me to allow my capacity to be expanded by his capacity. And then he calls me to desire greatness that in my life, his greatness may be seen. All of these things are interwoven. But when we surrender the best that we have of heart, mind, body, and soul, he adds the increase in our life. So I want to ask you, are you willing to be first this week? Are you willing to serve? Are you willing to die? Are you willing to get needed a little bit? Are you willing to go back in that oven? And we're not asking you to take on any more projects. Not asking you to join any more ministries. You can serve right where you're at. Some of us, most of us are working. Right in your workplace. Monday morning, 8 o'clock. How could you serve in the workplace? How could you be salt and light in that office where people are angry and bitter and devious and backbiting? How could you serve and be great right where God has planted you? In your homes, in your schools, wherever God has placed you. And maybe even the more remote, the better. Because he made it so clear in our weakness, when our capacity is gone, his strength and power and glory is manifested in us. I pray that we hunger to be made great by reflecting the image of our God. Bow with me, please. Father in heaven, we glorify you. Help us to see that you have prepared us, designed us, ordained us for greatness. Help us not to be satisfied with just making it through this life, paying some bills and having some fun. But God, we give you permission to take our small capacity, break those areas of our life that are hindering your movement and use us that the name, the light, the love, the life of Jesus may shine through us. Make us instruments in your hand. And we pray simply that you will be pleased and glorified. And we promise that we will give you all the praise and all the glory. We thank you for the privilege of being called your children and of being used by you to draw every man, woman, and child back to our Savior. Glory be your name. Glory to your name. And all God's children said amen and amen. God bless you. Thank you for joining us for this installment of Renewing Your Mind. 
a web-based ministry of South Bay Community Church, located at 47385 Warm Springs Boulevard, Fremont, California. We can be found on the web at www.sobcc.org. We'd like to take a moment to invite you to come and join us in person for one of our dynamic Sunday morning worship services. Services begin at 8 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. each Sunday, and we would be so blessed to have you come worship with us. We'd also love to hear from you a word about how this ministry is helping you renew your mind for the glory of Jesus Christ. So please contact us, and we pray God's blessings over you the rest of this day. God bless.